You would turn with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. <clears throat> Hopefully, my voice will hold out for this morning, but till then, I ask that you bear with me. If you like to watch movies or television shows, you may have noticed that a lot of today's shows and movies are either reboots or sequels to older shows, and that's nothing new. In fact, uh, the idea of a reboot or a sequel has been around for, for many, many years, but I think perhaps one of the best sequel or reboots that there is comes from the late 80s, early 90s. Star Trek The Next Generation was a, a sequel to the 60s TV show, but it was set a century after the original, so 100 years after. So it featured a whole new crew, featured a whole new ship of the Enterprise. And so it took the same idea, but put it in a, a slightly different context. Well, this morning we're beginning a series that I'm calling The Next Generation. Because I want you to think about what this church will look like, not even 100 years from now. Just, let's just think a few decades from now. What is this church going to look like? What... Who's going to be here in, say, 50 years? What role will you have played in those people's lives, or will the church even exist? I don't know if you were able to read it on the video there, but statistics show that approximately 43% of Christians polled by Barna have accepted Christ before they turn 13. Approximately two-thirds of Christians accept Christ before they turn 18. And only about, well, somewhere around 21%, I think it was, actually accept Christ after they turn 18. And so, this morning as we're talking about this, the next generation, I want to challenge you about our children in the church. Because the, when we had the ones come down this morning, two of those were mine. So how many children do we have in the church? I think that we have allowed the challenges of COVID-19 to overcome us. I think there's been the challenge of not having a full-time pastor here, and that's been challenging. But really, I think it's time that we stand up and begin working in the lives of children in our community. And it's time that we get to that. So let's look at Psalm 127 this morning. It's just five verses <clears throat> that talk about raising up children. We'll start in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. 
Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Before we continue, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word and the great love that you have for us. That you reveal yourself and your will and your purpose for us. Lord, you're a revealing, self-revealing God. Lord, as you reveal your heart to us this morning, I pray that we would take it and that we would cherish it and that we would act upon it. So Lord God, have your way this morning. Lord, though my voice is weak, may your word be strong. Pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. So first this morning, I want us to look at this, the house and the city of God. The house and the city of God. For he says, unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. Now, I'm not going to read that whole thing again, but the first two verses here are introductory verses to the main focus of the psalm, which comes in the next part of this uh, verses three through five, three through five, but here they emphasize that everything comes from God. All of these blessings come from Yahweh, and this first—it's called a strophe. Uh, this first partial uh, part of the psalm teaches that God is sovereign over all human works. It's a, a warning against trying to be self-sufficient; that we have to rely upon God for all the blessings. For the Israelites, this passage took a different meaning than it does for us because of our modern context, but it begins with building a home in a city. Well, for the Jews, the purpose of the home wasn't for possessions, it wasn't to have a nice house, it was a structure to contain the family, to protect the family. And the walls that went around the city were there to protect the homes that were filled with family. The whole focus of this psalm is really on the family. And so these two sayings that make up the psalm, that's what they're concerned with. It's concerned with the family. In its original context, it's about the, the physical and biological family. But as you look at the Medoff narrative here, what is God trying to build? He's trying to build a nation of families because the family is the building block for all society. And he's building specifically the nation of Israel. But for the Christian, I think the meaning is different because he's not building the nation of Israel. He's building his church. And so as we're looking at this this morning, we're going to go back and forth between what it means for the Jews and what it means for us today. And so first of all, God works in the building. Now, there's been no instance that I've heard of or read of where somebody prayed, God, would you give me a home? Would you give me a house? And then they leave and they come the next day and boom, the building's there. That's never been the case. God requires labor from mankind. There's a need for builders, but everything is under God's sovereignty. So think about this. When they worked, the people came together and they worked to build a they worked hard. They worked diligently. 
But when the Lord saw what was in their heart, that they were building this to bring praise and honor to themselves, what happened? God came down to see this massive tower that they were building. And he came down and said, this is not good for you. So he confused their languages, and they spread, and the building stopped. And no longer continued to be built. So God led them to abandon the tower. All of their hard work was in vain. But on the other hand, when Solomon was building the temple, God provided all the materials that was needed. There was plenty of workers. There were people with wisdom that God had given them to, to be able to build the building the right way. And so there was always a construction of the temple that was directed by God, that was blessed by God. But like I said, this isn't really about building a physical building. It was about building a nation. God directed the people of Israel on how to raise your family. God directed the people of Israel to, to build a, a legacy that lasted, a, a different kind of house, not a physical house, but a, a home, a family, a household. And so the focus of the psalm is really on children. God builds the house. God provides the people to live in the house, the family. And when they try to work on their own to make that kind of thing happen, it doesn't go well. Think of Abraham. We read about him uh, in our opening passage this morning. Abraham did not trust the Lord to provide the heir that he needed. So his wife, Sarah, said, here, take my slave, Hagar, and have relations with her. And from that relation came Ishmael. But the Lord said, that's not the child of promise. And so they sent him away. But then Isaac came, and he was the promised child from God. And it was from the line of Isaac that Abraham would be blessed. Well, today, God is working to build a different kind of house. He's trying to build a different kind of city. He's building a temple made of living stones, Peter tells us. He's building a heavenly city, according to Revelation. He's building a family that is not a merely physical family, but is a spiritual family of those who belong to Jesus Christ. And so God is working to build this family, but he still requires his people to work. We still have to go and share the gospel verbally. We have to do the act of evangelism to go and tell people that God loves you. He sent his son to die for you, and all you have to do is believe in him and confess that Jesus is Lord. Believe that he was resurrected from the dead, and you will be saved. And so he commands us that we still work, but it is God who is doing the work through us. It is the word and the spirit who is drawing people to himself. We just simply tell we are the mouthpiece but god is the active agent and so if we labor to build up the church but we seek to we, we fail to seek god's will in it and to seek god's power in it we'll build in vain but god is building his church god also works in securing he works in securing notice that there is a watchman who is doing his duty he's defending the city He's still working, but if God is not protecting it, then the watchman labors in vain. Why? 
because human beings fail. Watchmen fall asleep, and the city is invaded. I think, I'm trying to remember, was it uh, Sidon, I think it was, that was invaded twice because the watchmen had fallen asleep? Twice that happened? Watchmen fall asleep. Watchmen fail. The city is invaded, but God does not sleep. He has no need for sleep. And if he is defending a city, it doesn't matter. It will not fall. Indeed, the story of the persistence of the nation of Israel demonstrates this fact. That this small nation has continued to exist through, though they were overtaken by Assyria. Though they were overtaken by Babylon, they have remained and continued to persist until this day. Why? Because God has secured them. He's watching over them. God is also with his church. For over 2,000 years, the message of the gospel has The church has continued to grow. Now, you may hear me say that and go, wait a minute. Our church isn't continuing to grow. In fact, churches in the West have considerably shown, or consistently shown that they are losing members. There's a decrease in membership each year in the Western church. But if we zoom out from us and look at the global context, the church is growing globally. There are still many people who are accepting Christ. In fact, I think it was that uh, the Christian faith is gaining 1.4% overall. The Muslim faith is gaining like 1.8, but all others are less than 1%, something like that. And so right now, Christianity is the dominant world religion. It's going to stay that way for a little while, but there are others that are coming. But right now, the church is still growing. The church is still moving. God is still working. God is still bringing people to himself. In fact, Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. God will not allow his church to fail. God is not going to allow the church to end in failure. Christ tells us that there will be an end to this world. And that at that time, the church will be under severe persecution. And it will be hard to remain steadfast in the faith. But nowhere does it tell us that at some point the church ceased to exist. Nowhere does it say that there were no followers of Jesus during that time. The followers might become fewer and fewer, but they don't become extinct. There will always be a church until the day of judgment. But this promise does not negate the work of the watcher. We must continually be on guard against the schemes of the world and the devil. We must be constantly watching and defending. We must be protecting the church, and we must make sure that the members of our churches don't fall into enemy hands. We don't want people leaving the church and going to the enemy. But I'm afraid that we've already allowed that to happen. Because there's already a challenge to keep children and to keep youth in the church and to protect them from ungodliness. And that was with us having multiple opportunities per week for them to come and hear the gospel. It was having multiple opportunities per week for us to be able to counsel them and to to speak to them about godly things. But for the past year, we haven't had that opportunity for them. 
The church quit, but did the devil cease his work? I don't think so. In fact, statistics show that depression, suicide, negative thoughts have grown drastically over the past year because of isolation and because of churches abdicating their role because of fears of COVID. The devil's been busy tempting and confusing our young people with the world's ideologies, and the church has stepped aside. So while we trust God to secure us, it doesn't mean we can abdicate our role. We must continue to be watchmen. But notice that God doesn't only work in building and securing, but he also works in providing. Verse number two, in vain you get up early and stay up late working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Now, my, my brother <clears throat> owns his own sand and gravel company. and He posted a picture on his Facebook the other day that says, uh, had a caption that said, be self-employed. You can choose your own hours. And then the picture shows him with one of his trucks raised and uh, the wheels off and he's working on it. And I think he posted this at like 2 o'clock in the morning. He goes, many people who are self-employed are up and working early in the morning, late at night, trying to provide, working longer, harder hours oftentimes than those who clock in and out. But I think it's easy for us all to work too much. Many of us will wake up early and continue working until way too late. We barely rest because we have to be productive. Society has told us that we find our value in being productive. And why is that? Because we have to provide, right? Now, let me say this. I'm not against working. I'm certainly not against working. And I'm not suggesting we be lazy by any means. In fact, the Bible clearly condemns laziness. Just read any of the Proverbs. I'm just, what I'm saying is we can't sit on a rump and pray that God will give us what we want or what we need. What I'm saying is that ultimately God is the one who provides, but it is through our labor that he gives. Ultimately, though, we find our rest in Jesus. There's no amount of good deeds that you and I can do to earn eternal glory. In fact, what have we earned? What does the Bible tell us that all of our acts have earned? The wages of sin is death. All of our works of righteousness don't add up to salvation. But Jesus came, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus was resurrected to grant us eternal life in him. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so God is the one who provides the rest that we need, and we can find rest in him. But God also provides something to us that is very important and so important that it's going to take up the rest of our time today, and that is children. That is the main point of this psalm. So let's look at the next three verses. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord. Children, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. Happy is the man who has filled his quiver with them. Such men will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. 
So we see the children of God. The children of God. Now, like I said, the point of Psalm 127 is that children are a heritage. They are a blessing from God. God provides them to us not only as biological families, but also as a church family. So we must have a proper attitude toward children. We must take proper action with children, and then we'll see what God can do with them. So let's first look at the proper attitude towards children. Verse 3 says, Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, children a reward. They're a gift. They're a blessing. They're not burdens. They're not interruptions to us. We must treasure children as we would a precious gift because that's exactly what they are. Children are God's inheritance to us. You know, my, my grandfather passed away when I was in the eighth grade. And uh, he left something behind for all of his grandkids. He had this gun cabinet over in the corner that was filled with all kinds of rifles. And so each one of the grandkids got a, a rifle, which was great, right? I, I think my brother was five, so let's give him a rifle, right? But I got uh, a Winchester Canadian with an octagonal barrel. And that's been put up as a special item. I don't really use it, but it's there. I cherish that because it's my inheritance from my papa. But the inheritance that God gives to us is children. That's God's gift from him to us. And scripture has much to say about how to raise children, and we'll look at some of those in the coming weeks. But an event from Jacob's life, I think, illustrates this idea that children are a heritage of the Lord. When his wife, Rachel, was childless, she came to Jacob and demanded of him, give me children or I'll die. And Jacob responded by asking rhetorically, am I in the place of God who has withheld this fruit of your womb? And then when Rachel did give birth to a child of her own, it was because God listened to her, Scripture says, and opened her womb. And so the idea that children are an inheritance from God means that, first of all, they're a good thing. We should desire to have children. We should desire to have children in our church. In fact, I would rather have a church filled with children than one that is devoid of them. Children bring life to the church. They bring joy to the church. I've seen some of you, when my children come up and talk to you, you, your faces just light up. Could you imagine how much joy you would have to have multiple children come up to you and say, thank you for having me here today. I, I love you. But many times, we look at children in the church as if they're some kind of a, of a burden or a distraction from God. Our expectation is that they'll sit still. Our expectation is that they'll stop talking and listen to what that preacher's up there saying. And that's a good thing, but I would rather have children here and moving around and catching bits and pieces than not have them at all. Because children are a blessing to us from God, not a burden. Further, there our inheritance not just from God, but back to God. Uh, the time will come when you and I depart from this earth, and the question is, what will we leave behind? Will the church be filled with children with whom you've labored? Or will it be empty because there's been no children in the church? 
See, children are a fruit of our labor. It says that it's a herit- they are a heritage from the Lord, but they're also a reward. A reward for what? For our labor. See, when I was a, a pastor at Mill Creek, there was this little boy that uh, he didn't have anything. He didn't really have anything to do with me at church. I'd show up and untie things, and he just, you know, look away and cling to his mom. But I went to a basketball game, and I didn't intentionally find him, but we ended up sitting in front of him. And uh, you know, so we were there for what, a couple hours or so with the basketball game. And at first, he didn't want to have anything to do with me, just like at church. But uh, after a little bit of time and you know, sharing some popcorn with him, uh, he decided that I was okay to hang out with. And so he uh, came down and sat with me. And I, I was so excited because I'd been trying for weeks to get this, if not months, to get this child to come and see me at church. And he wouldn't have anything to do with me. And so I was like, oh, I've got to take a selfie with him because this may not happen again. Well, the next Sunday morning, while I was up preaching, I was up on the stage, you know, I'm going back and forth behind the pulpit like I do here. And I walk over to this side, and I'm, I'm preaching, and, and then when I turn back around, there he is on the stage, just looking at me. And so I, I kind of walk over to him, and I'm expecting him to take off running like he normally does, and he does like this. And so I picked him up, and you know, held him and continued to preach with him until he began to squirm and want him down. Then I let him down, and he ran back over to his mama, and he sat there and was good for the rest of the service. Well, what's my point in telling you that? While children are not primarily the product of our human effort, they are a gift from God, but that doesn't mean there's not labor involved. In fact, ladies who have had children, what is it called? When you're about to have a child. Labor, right? Why? Because the process is a painful, hard work. Well, the same is true with children in our church. If we want to have children in our church, it's not just going to happen. They're not just going to magically appear. We're going to have to work for them. We're going to have to go out and talk to families. We're going to have to go sit with them at baseball games. We're going to have to go sit with them at basketball games. We're going to have to go visit them, talk to them. We're going to have to run the vans again. So what what does that mean for the rest of us? Well, we're going to have to have somebody to run the vans, but we're also going to have to have some people stand up to take care of them when they're here. We're going to have to have somebody to teach them. We're going to have to have somebody to just come and sit with them and help keep control of the classroom. We need people who are willing to sacrifice comfort for the sake of the kingdom of God. But if we have the right attitude toward children, when we remember that they're gifts from God that he's given to us and the fruit of our labor, then we will take proper action with them. What is proper action with children? Well, look at verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. If we're Laboring with the children, that implies that we have to take some action with them, right? Labor means work. We can't just have them come into the church and leave them be. You can't just have them come and, you know, you all sit in this section over here and leave them alone. There's proper action that must be undertaken. And the psalmist refers to the children as arrows in the hands of a warrior. Arrows in the hands of a warrior. Well, what does the warrior do with his arrows? Well, 
you have to first of all remember that in Saul's day, you couldn't just go cutting and pick up the straight arrows that are sharp. Uh, you won't just find them laying around on the ground. You had to go find some sticks. You had to shape them. You had to craft them. You had to get the stick and, and straighten it out and, and sharpen it. And it was a time-consuming. And you had to be careful with it. Well, and the same is true for, with our children. They don't grow into straight, sharp arrows by themselves. It takes effort to train them up. It takes time to train them up. The psalmist says that they're arrows. Think about this. A crooked arrow will not fly straight. You have an arrow that's crooked and you have it in your bow and you release. It's going to catch the wind whatever way and it'll go wild and crazy all over the place. And so the warrior, the first thing he does, he wants to make sure that his arrow is straight. Now, does that mean we need to bring the children in and when they start acting up, we got to straighten them out so we bonk them on the head and say, straighten up. No. We don't need to do like the old Puritans and, and carry a staff around with us in the service. And when the children start acting up, you reach over and tap them on the head. That, that's not what I'm talking about here. What I mean is to straighten them out, we must teach them. Children have lots of questions. You notice children are really good at asking questions. In fact, probably the most difficult theological questions I've ever been asked don't come from adults. They come from kids. Why does God do this? Why does God allow this to happen? You know, I don't know the answer to some of their questions, and I just have to be honest and say I don't know the answer to that question. But... Kids have lots of questions because they're learning. And it's up to the church and it's up to the the parents of the children to teach them the truths of the Bible. And we want to make sure that once they're released from us, that they fly straight. That they're not going off in all kind of wild and crazy directions. We want them to stay the course, to, to fly true according to the truths of the gospel. And so to do that, we have to make sure, first of all, that they're shaped properly. But what good does it? What good does it do for us if, as a, as a warrior, I have this arrow that's sharp, or sorry, that's straight, and I shoot it, and then it just bounces off the other guy's arm? Right? It, it, didn't, it wasn't sharp. It just harmlessly bounces off. That's not the goal, right? The goal is that that arrow will be sharpened, and then it will penetrate the target. So our goal is to send children out into enemy territory, out into the world, and able to penetrate it with the truth of the gospel. Not just that they stay true, but that they will impact the lives around them with the truths of the gospel as they penetrate the darkness. And so they have to be equipped to be able to be useful in combat. They must be equipped in how to challenge the culture and how to point people to Jesus. It requires the church to step in, to train them up, and to sharpen them in the gospel. But then, what good does it do if an arrow remains in the quiver? Well, look at verse 5. Happy is the man, or blessed is the man who has his quiver filled with them. Right? So, okay, we've got all these. They're in our quiver. We're blessed. Right? But, if those arrows are not aimed and released then are they effective weapons? No. 
Arrows that are left in the quiver or arrows that are shot just haphazardly in any direction, they're not going to do any good. In fact, they can cause more harm than good a lot of times. And so we need skill and direction. The archer must know his target and have sufficient skill to fire arrows into it. And so the point of, of rearing children in the church is not so much to keep them in the church here. It's to release them out into the, the enemy territory to go and penetrate it with the gospel. Our goal is not to keep them for ourselves, but to aim them at the target and release them as burning arrows for Jesus. And so we must instill in our children a passion for evangelism and missions. And there is a cost involved in that because it means they may leave and probably will leave to go somewhere else. And that's okay. In fact, that's great because that means that they're going to minister and share the gospel to those who need it. And that's the reason why we're raising them up. It may mean that children go to some remote part of the world. It may even mean that those children have to lay down their lives for the gospel. Jim Elliott is a young man who gave his life in trying to spread the gospel to some of the unreached tribes of South America. Now, he had Christian parents, and they were concerned that going down to South America, South American tribes that he would die. And so they tried to pressure him to stay in the United States. But listen to what he wrote to them. Grieve not then if your son seems to desert you. Remember how the psalmist described children. He said they were a, a heritage from the Lord, that every man should be happy who had his quiver full of them. And what is a quiver full of but arrows? And what are the arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's hosts. If we regard children with a proper attitude and we equip them with proper action, then we get to see the results of that. And the results is the powerful witness of children in the kingdom of God. A church with a quiver who's, that is full of straight and sharpened arrows that's ready to be sent in the heart of the enemy will not be ashamed when it comes time to speak with the enemies at the gate. Look at the end of verse 5. Such men will never be put to shame when they speak with the enemies at the city gate. Now, the city gate was where the Hebrew men would gather together. They would come to conduct business and to carry out justice. They would come... For war, they would come for law, and they would come for business. And so the idea here is that a church with children like what I've described will not be ridiculed by any opponent because those children will be a living testimony to the acts of the church. And so if we have people who are raised in this church who are going out and making a difference for the kingdom of God, then no one will be able to accuse us of anything. Because the witness would speak for itself. It is never possible, writes Boyce, it is never possible to have too many spiritual children. Therefore, blessed is the man or woman or the church or the nation whose quiver is full of them. 
Church, God is building up his church. We are made of those who have confessed Jesus as God and who have believed that God raised him from the dead. And as his church, we work in partnership with him. He's enabling in the power behind it. But we work in partnership with him to build, secure, and provide for his church. And a major part of that is the church bringing people into the church, training them in the word, and then sending them out into the world. And understanding the statistics that Christians generally make their decision to follow Christ before they turn 18, that means we should be striving as a church to reach those, to train them in the Lord, and then to send them out as arrows against the enemy. It's time for us to train the children. We've got to go get them, bring them in, train them up, and send them out. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.